Hello everyone and welcome to 42 to Doomsday. I'm Robert. And I'm Mark. And today, or even tonight, on Father's Day, we'll be talking about J&T. But before we do that, uh, Mark and I are going to talk about uh, being parents, being Doctor Who fans and being parents, and uh, the impact of the show on our children. talk about uh, what your kids think about the show in its current incarnation well i have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old my nine-year-old daughter has no interest in the show whatsoever she's aware of it the music freaks her out has never actually watched it but knows enough about the show to uh, obviously understand what it is my uh, interest in it Uh, my six-year-old though i did subject him to revenge of the sidemen and he absolutely loved it revenge of the sidemen i love it anyway i think it's Vastly, it's good fun. It's underrated. Just goes to show that children have no critical faculties whatsoever. Absolutely, and I sat there enjoying it with him. And at, at the end of every episode, he'd say again, again, again. So we watched the whole thing through, and then I blew the whole uh, experiment by putting on Megloss, which, <laughs> which, which had just been released on DVD, and of course the whole scene sinking, and no, lost interest in it. And then I tried it again with Spearhead from Space. And he ran out the room. So, um, again, now he's aware of it. He understands there's been many actors, but not really, uh, apart from Revenge of the Cybermen, has not really shown much interest in it, which is a shame, really. I was going to show him Earth Shock, but I was a bit worried about the high death counts in it. But uh, what about yourself? My, my, my two kids, uh, one's eight and one's, uh, one's six, um, they, uh, they've watched bits and pieces, I think, of, of a couple of episodes. They certainly sat down with my wife and I on Boxing Day last year and, and watched The the Snowman. And they... It was okay, I suppose. It was, why am I sitting with my parents watching this strange show with a walking iceman? They were terrified. My eldest um, my eldest was terrified by the, uh, the ice woman. Um, and I could see her visibly flinch. <laughs> and I was just sitting there thinking... What am I subjecting my daughter to? But um, at the end of it, they, they, they seem to like it. But they, I mean, they have their own interests and that sort of thing. Uh, my youngest one is not quite as uh, as uh, nervous around spooky things. Uh, and I mean, you know, she, she took it in, but she was probably thinking oh, I could be playing with reading a book or looking at a picture book or, you know, fiddling around on the Nintendo DS or something like that. But um, it was nice to it was nice to sit down on, uh, you know, post Christmas and uh, with the family and, and share a tv show because it that just it doesn't happen these days you know if you're sitting down with your kids to watch a television show you're using it usually doing it to make sure that they you know you got your finger on the on the on the remote so you can quickly change the channel just in case something inappropriate comes up at 7:30 which is which the is the x factor oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> just well it's either the x factor or it's big brother or it's you know some ridiculous reality show that should be uh, you know put into the furnace but um yeah um yeah, so I mean, they're aware of the show, and certainly when uh, Capaldi was uh, announced, my you know the, the kids were sort of knew that, and they recognised they recognised the theme tune and all that. It's, the theme tune is one of the most recognisable pieces of music in in the world, you know, obviously. Um, but they, unlike uh, you know other fans who've got young children in their family, and they talk about you know they're, they're not indoctrinating their kids, but you know getting their kids to watch, and the kids seem to enjoy it. My daughter's. Uh, don't come to me and say, "Can I watch a DVD, Dad?" or "Can I watch something uh, with the new show?" Um, they they don't have that interest, and I, I'm not one to push it on them. I mean, I mean they're only kids, but at, at, they they'll make their own choices about the sort of shows that they like, and the sort of shows that they like at the moment are, are things that you'll see on ABC Two uh, uh, for kids. Um, you know, uh, Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig is high, which does have Brian Blessed, I believe, occasionally as the grandfather pig. So there's your Doctor Who connection there, but. Um, Octonauts, yeah, maybe. Uh, there's the one with the turtle. I can't remember the talking turtle, not the teenage mutant. Arthur, yes. But uh, no, the, my kids. Um, I'm happy for them to find their own shows that they enjoy. And if, it, if you know, if Doctor Who uh, is one of those things in the future, great. I mean, the DVDs are there. They'll be. They'll get all my stuff when I 
you know, shuffle off this mortal coil uh, to do with as they please. So, um, yeah. But as I said, they'll find their own way. And uh, if it's Doctor Who, great. If it's not, doesn't worry me in the slightest. It was interesting when I attended the uh, Lords of Time convention earlier this year, the amount of uh, fathers and sons or daughters who attended the convention as well. It was quite uh, bizarre to see, actually. We go to events and things previously. It was always older men by themselves with occasional uh, smattering of females there. But uh, to see you know young kids there and enjoying both the new series and the old series is great. The, the new series is... Uh... Definitely something that uh, boys and girls can, can enjoy. I mean, I remember um, last year attending a, a dancing competition that my daughters were in, in and sort of sitting out in the lobby uh, waiting to be um, uh, waiting for them to, uh, to, to, to come on. And um, there was a, a teenage girl sitting uh, on the, at the other end of the couch and I noticed that she had a, a laptop. She couldn't have only been about 14 or 15. And she was uh, she had had the laptop open and uh, she, had some, she was playing some video files and... Um, you know, I looked up from my book and she was watching the last 10 minutes of the end of time where... Uh... I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> and But it, that sort of thing, the, it, it, it probably, it, it fits with what, you know, teenage kids, especially teenage girls, you know, probably like these days where it's, you know, it's a sort of unrequited love. And, you know, Tenant was very popular with, with younger members of the audience, especially the female contingent. And to sort of see David Tennant's doctor be there one minute and then gone the next must be you know particularly wrenching for them you know they've got this sort of uh they're a little bit love struck and uh they have this yearning for him and then he's gone and it's sort of you know it matches the whole unrequited love thing from the twilight movies and stuff like that that uh so it it, it, it i find the new series more than the classic series appeals to you know both genders yeah. of, of kids but um yeah, no, it's very interesting, very interesting. Now, we, 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 before we started, we were talking about uh, what, what our kids, uh, you know, what interest our kids have in the show. But when you're a child, uh, I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're, I suppose we're talking Father's Day, your father or even your parents, what, what interest did they have in the show? Well, as my parents were born in the UK, as was I, um, they used to watch it from the beginning. So they have memories of watching Hartnell and Troughton through their childhood I remember having discussions with my grandparents about Doctor Who and things like that and I remember I was over there nearly 20 years ago when the War Machines VHS came out and I, I was watching it with my nana and just for five minutes what the quality was like as you do back then mm. on VHS tapes it said to me that was when Doctor Who was really good <laughs> and that was in <laughs> there's always that generation isn't there but there um, yeah exactly so my parents have very strong memories of it uh, mainly in the 60s not so much the 70s uh, although my dad does remember City of Death quite well. I think about 16 million people in the UK have strong memories. That was the only thing that was on at the time. There was nothing else on. And then I think, unfortunately, when season 24 aired over here, I had the, uh, made the mistake of putting on uh, Paradise Towers episode one. And it was my parents watching it. And uh, yes, didn't go down too well. Uh, I actually ended up turning the TV off because I couldn't handle the, uh, the criticisms. When Remembrance Part 1 came on, my uh, father said to me, that's more like it. So, um, mm. but they just sort of they've kept touch with it. Obviously, you haven't watched many of the new series, although my dad did say Tennant was the best Doctor. Oh, really? It's, they've sort of drifted in and out of it, really. Ten minutes before uh, Five Doctors was airing over here, he said to me, can you go and get some milk from the milk bar? I've never run so fast in my life to get back before it uh, was on the tally. The things parents do to their children. I know. I said, what were you doing all day? Why are you asking me now? Like, ten minutes to go. Five Doctors. Anyway. Shocking, shocking. Yeah, shocking. How about your parents? My parents continue to have absolutely zero interest in the show. They, I mean, I know that they've they they've watched science fiction because I remember them taking me to see Star Wars at the drive-in in seventy. It must have been nineteen seventy, late seventy-seven or early seventy-eight. So I mean, they took me to that, and I know my mother took me to watch Empire Strikes Back at the cinema in nineteen eighty eighty-one. I never got that experience. Really? Never got to see it. I only got to see Empire Strikes Back. On VHS in 1984 or 5, oh, I think. Okay. So I'm not surprising you when I say that Darth Vader is Luke's father. Yeah, <laughs> like that scene out of The Simpsons. <laughs> no, my parents are fairly pragmatic souls. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's no criticism. I mean, they, they worked hard, long, hard hours. And that sort of frippery, I suppose you would, would call it, just didn't interest, inter- didn't interest them at all. I mean, I know my... Um, my father is a is a keen ABC watcher, but um, and I'm sure he's bumped into episodes of Doctor Who on the ABC these days whilst he's been on the couch waiting for say repeats of the Bill to come on. 
But um, no, they, they never had any interest in it. I mean, they never stopped me from watching it or anything like that. I mean, you know, I got pocket money and that sort of thing, so I was buying the Target novelizations. Uh, though they, I think one day when I rolled up with four copies that I, four books that I bought in one hit out of birthday money, it was I, there was a, you know, what are you spending your money on? I, I, but um, no, I, I sort of watched it in spite of their their disinterest. And uh, I mean, I you know, I can remember watching it on the ABC of a, in the evenings during the 70s and 80s and having an occasional conversation with my father and sort of knowing, trying to interest him but knowing full well that he wasn't interested at all. Uh, and again, that's no criticism of dad or, or, or mum. I mean, you know, I'm not quite sure why I, in the in the face of their sort of, you know, disinterest, how I managed to monopolise the TV at 5.30 of a weekday evening. But... Um, and they never, and as I said before, they never actively stopped me, but they never ac- actively promoted it. But um, and I mean, to this day, I, it's it's I suppose it's a little, it's not an embarrassing thing, I suppose. But um, I don't talk about my interest in it. I don't talk about, you know, the fact that I've written fan fiction or anything like that, or I've got this massive collection of DVDs. It's just or you've just won a, a double gamma, or I've won a double gamma. I mean, I you know, if I could find the damn thing, I'd probably have it framed. But uh, it's like I stick it somewhere in the house where they can see it, and they go, "Ooh, an award!" But uh, no, I mean. It's just it's just one of those things where you know it's my thing and uh, I don't I don't bother them with it or anything like that. So it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, you sort of keep it hidden. I'm a forty I'm forty one years old and I keep it hidden from my parents still. I used to keep it hidden from my workmates quite a lot until they were having some trivia competition a few years ago and somebody tried to stump the whole group with them and said, "Oh, who was the act, actor who played the, the first Davros?" Shouted out Michael Wisher in point five of a millisecond. Everybody just turned around and I was, I was sort of outed myself. <laughs> but but now it's cool. We were in high school. It wasn't cool, especially when Sylvester McCoy, 20, season 24 and 25, I, mean, I keep going on about it, but it certainly wasn't cool then. But now it's definitely cool, which is great. No, it is. It is. And, 25 uh, years ahead of my time. I, I do. No, I, I will actually say that for Christmas in the in the early 80s, they bought me a copy of Key to Time, Peter Haining's Key to Time. They, they'd gone to Melbourne because we were living in the country at that time. They came back with a copy of Key to Time. And I was ecstatic. I was ecstatic. And I do remember my father going through the copy of the technical manual uh, <laughs> when we were in Ballarat. I bought a copy of the technical manual and he, he he looked at it with a bemused smile on his face and handed it back to me. What was he going to build you? A, a quark. <laughs> we're going to build it out of fairy bottles and cardboard boxes, son, and aluminium foil. Let's go. Oh, well, look, as I've said, at least my, my, my addiction wasn't heroin. So I mean, if it was just a if it was just a a cheap and cheerful BBC TV program, then uh, then fair enough. But um, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, that's all right. I mean, I've had plenty of other opportunities to sit down with my father and watch television with him together and and enjoy that. But Doctor Who wasn't one of them. It's no skin off my nose at the end of the day. So tonight's uh, main topic of discussion uh, is uh, Richard Marsden's biography of John Nathan Turner, which uh, was released earlier uh, this year, um, to some controversy uh, because, uh, well, as in life and in death, John Nathan Turner was a fairly controversial man for any number of reasons, for his, uh, his, 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 uh, his contribution to the show and also his private life as it was revealed by this, um, by this biography. Uh, Mark and I managed to uh, obtain our copies and, and, and sit down and we've completed reading it. So in the light of the book, um, Mark, uh, what, what, did you, uh, what, well, what did you think of the book and what did you think of what it uh, revealed to you about uh, John Nathan Turner, um, his private and uh, public life? I must admit, I was really looking forward to reading this because when we joined fandom and got interested in the show, he was a producer for that for that whole nine years. So we sort of grew up with him and and the work he was doing and and the the triumphs and the tears. So I was really interested to hear about um, his approach to some of the work he was doing and also a lot of the behind the scenes things which came out, which, you know, as you you alluded to, um, quite shocking, which I don't think we'll discuss in further detail though. But uh, it's one thing about the book I did enjoy was I suppose it's honesty um, when discussing the topic. Of course, John Nathan turns not alive to defend himself, nor is Gary Downey. But... I really enjoyed reading it. I was more interested about what he did after the show, which wasn't much, but I felt very, very sorry for him. And he just couldn't do anything else, really, apart from pantomimes and a couple of shows. It was terrible. It was a terrible waste. 
actually. But um, in terms of the book itself and the way it was written, I really enjoyed it. I I think I read it in about three days flat. Got home, put the kids to bed, and just kept on reading it. It was really, really interesting. As uh, and of course, as um, you know, his life before joining the BBC as well, which really nobody knew much about. Um, yeah, it was a really good read. How about yourself? Well, like you, I was very keen uh, to get my hands on a copy, and um, the uh, the book went through a, uh, as some people might be aware, a bit of a convoluted route to publication. It was with one publisher who. Uh, maybe realising they had a bit of a hot potato on their hands, let it go. And uh, Milk uh, Publishing uh, uh, took it up and, uh, you know, there was a, a printer went out of business, which was delaying the release, and uh, all manner of uh, interesting things happened to it. But it uh, eventually got my hands hands on it, and, and like like you, I was keen to give it a read. And, and it is, a, it is a, a, quick, a quick read. I had it probably done in about four or five days. And, um, I mean, I, I took away from it two things... Uh, a greater sense of how the BBC worked and in some cases didn't work in the 70s and 80s. And, uh, uh, you know, a, a greater sort of understanding of, of, of where Nathan Turner came from as a, a you know, as a, as a uh, you know, in his teenage years and his, and his before, he, before he started working for the BBC. I mean, I'm not one who's really particularly interested in, in biographies of entertainment People in the entertainment industry, I, f- I find those sort of biographies fairly, fairly vacuous and shallow, um, because the only real interesting thing about entertainment people is their actual work. Their private lives are fairly mundane, and even when they're controversial, it's a fairly mundane controver- con- controversy. So, um, and, and much the case with Nathan Turner's, uh, you know, childhood and, and and pre-work life. I mean, it's just a sort of the standard life of a. Of a, a of an English child and teenager growing up in uh, in the fifties and sixties England, but um, I mean it, it's interesting to see where the man came from and and and, and where he his interests were sort of born and and clearly during school he was very drawn towards the entertainment uh, arts, but um, and and the other thing obviously as I said before was just interesting to see how the BBC worked uh, in the seventies and um, that was that was probably the most illuminating thing I took away uh, from reading the book. Um, because you know you, you you sort of have unless you work within that industry you don't really know what going what goes on and the only people who are most people just watch television and don't give a fig about uh, what goes on in the background but uh, for, for those of us who've you know followed Doctor Who for years and read all the background in in, in magazines like InVision etc etc you, you you gain a some sort of understanding of the production process and this enabled us to see. A bit further behind the production process, the decisions made by by higher up. So, from that viewpoint, it's a it's an interesting written oral history. Uh, you know, because Marzen interviews interviewed. You know, I think he says in the introduction, close to a hundred people, uh, and you do get multiple viewpoints on 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 any one given uh, topic of, uh, of of discussion in the book. And a lot of that is from people who you know who outlived Nathan Turner, who worked at the BBC and. Uh, in in managerial positions, so uh, from that I, I took that mostly away, and then of course there was some of the less savoury or salacious aspects of um, John Nathan Turner's personal life, which, as you say, we're not really going to be discussing on the podcast. It's not it's not suitable, but I, I will say that um, that uh, when someone's I don't particularly have any problems with anyone's personal life. It's only when it really rubs up against the law that uh, it becomes. Uh, a, a topic of uh, you know discontent and all that sort of thing, as it did with this particular book. I mean, there was a well-known tabloid in the UK that went absolutely berserk, and this is all in the in, in the light of Jimmy Savile's the revelations about Jimmy Savile. But um, we're not going to be touching on that today uh, or tonight, simply because it's it's not something that we you know we need to discuss. It's it's just about J and T's life and his, his his work on the show. How did your perception change of J and T once you've read the book? Um, I. Knew that he he was very dedicated to the show uh, when he was the producer, but I didn't have any appreciation until I'd read the book that of how hard working he was in in his in in the build up to his becoming producer. You know, he um he, he worked extremely hard by all accounts, and he was he got on very well with the people that he had to work with. A lot of people were quite pleased to be to, to know that John was. Uh, going to be working uh, on the production that they are involved in, and, and he was utterly dedicated to his job. Uh, he would give a hundred percent to you know the production that he was working on, and uh, I mean clearly a man of ambition. 
uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. I mean, if you 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 need you want to get the best out of yourself, and you want to get the best out of your career. Some careers don't last very long, and you, you and um and you know you you chopped before your time, basically, as as you know as as a lot of people are. But um, Nathan Turner, my, my impression of walking away or from the book was, yeah, he he um he gave his all for the jobs that he was given, and I suppose getting the producership for the show was a just reward for that. But that was that was my uh, main takeaway from the book. I think my perceptions of him, it's quite a it's quite a lengthy journey, I suppose, like the seven stages of grief almost, really. Because you know, as a young fan, you start any sort of news you read uh, is DWM. He had a certainly had a hand in terms of uh, approval of content and things like that. So I do remember reading the 83 convention review in Chicago, for example, you see pictures of him up on the stage with the doctors. So he was certainly a high-profile producer, and of course, as a young fan, he's doing everything right. When you join fandom, for example, and the years I joined in about 84, 85, and he starts uh, getting other publications, uh, local news publications like DE or Sonic Screwdriver, they start to get a more critical tone especially against Colin Baker, and they took, I suppose they took their cue a bit from DWB. As you go on, uh, and I suppose as you get old, you start getting a bit more of a critical eye on things, and I was then buying DWB at the time as well. Some of the attacks on him back then were quite, uh, he was like the Antichrist, wasn't he? Well, some, of the, some of the attacks on him back then were, you know, were deplorable. Um, I mean, here is a man who's doing his job as best he can, with a very limited budget and against the, you know, the... Managerial either, odds. Well, the managerial odds. I mean, the, the management was either completely disinterested or actively working against him for at any particular given period in, in his tenure. I understand that, uh, you know, magazines or fanzines like DWB, uh, some of the local ones here, had, had access to grind for whatever reason. I mean, a, a fandom has this problem of having an overly proprietorial uh, sense of its ownership of the show. Um, and anyone who comes up against that will be badly treated. Uh, and J- John Nathan Turner, to an extent, I mean, some of it was brought on by himself, by his own activities, but, uh, y- you know, I think uh, constantly going over to the US to, uh, to to promote the show probably put a lot of noses out of John in the UK. Um, you know, why are you concentrating on the US when the show is, is, is British? You should be concentrating more on, you know, getting the show right here and, and that sort of thing. But... Uh, in in a lot of ways, in in, in regards to that, J and T was a um, was a bit of a trailblazer. I mean, the show it has taken off to an extent in the UK now, and what's happening now was happening uh, in the eighties. And I suppose if the show had not been cancelled, uh, it, it could have got a lot of uh, headway in the in in the US. But um, no, I mean he was subject to a lot of personal attacks, some warranted, some unwarranted, and uh, and you get a sense of that in the book as well because a lot of uh, axes are reground. I remember the, the headline: eighty nine percent of fans want a new producer. And especially in in my eyes, at the same time, my opinion was in season twenty four. You know, particularly the show's quality had sunk to a new level. He's been in that job for eight or nine years. I think creatively he was burnt out, and mm. then you know being then ordered to make a show. With very little time, very little money, no leading actor, no scripts, and to get something on by September, even though I mean it wasn't that great, but mm. to get something on in a, in a short space of time, and especially when you, in, it's like when you go to a job or you've been in a job for so long, the last thing you want to do, creatively, you can do five or six years and that's it, and then he's been made, he's been ordered, you have to keep going. You have to keep going. And he didn't... I mean, he's also got to protect his own livelihood. And, of course, he was getting things out of the job as well, as you said, the conventions and all the perks that went around that. But uh, in terms of uh, his production-wise, the production stuff, I mean, to get something on the air in that, in that space of time was mm. had new newfound admiration for the man. And it just probably goes to show, I mean, one of his key key strengths as a, strength as a producer... I mean, he knew how to run a budget. He knew how to maintain a budget and squeeze as much money as he could out of it. And I mean, he, I think he ran a very tight ship, in, and and that was borne out by you know his his years in the seventies as as a uh, as he was coming climbing the ladder at the BBC. Uh, you know, he was very good at, at organisation and that sort of thing. And and a show with as limited a budget as Doctor Who had back then, uh, which was basically an unloved child of BBC management, for him to be able to you know bring in a show on time, on budget, uh, and still get the ratings, 
and also you know marketed to the US where it had a larger and larger and it was getting a larger and larger fan base uh, just goes to show that in terms of the um, one aspect of the of the role the producership role he was very good at the organizational stuff uh, for me and I've always felt this even before reading the book I mean his the creative side of the show I think he he was certainly interested in, in certain aspects of the creative sh- side of the show. Certainly, the visual look, you know, costumes, bringing in costumes for companions and for the Doctor. Um, he was very interested in that sort of thing, the the design, in in a sense. I mean, he was more than happy to to fiddle around with you know something as iconic as as the TARDIS, the the, the police box exterior, you know, going for the the music. Uh, I mean, the title sequences. I mean, the, the sort of the visual aspects. But the producership of of the show, um, it needed. It needed someone who was also interested in the creative writing side, and you had people like Graham Williams who had a writing background. You had Philip Hinchcliffe who was who worked you know hand in glove with with Robert Holmes. Barry Letts you know produced and, and wrote. Um, all these all these sort of people knew stories, knew how to put together a story. I mean, obviously, not all Hinchcliffe stories are great, not all Graham Williams stories are, are, are great, but at least they knew how to sit down and write a story and. For very much, very much, John Nathan Turner was beholden to his script editors. The, the tone of the show, the tone of the storytelling, was not really shaped or influenced by John Nathan Turner as far as I, I can see. It was shaped by his script editors. So, you know, Eric Sayward comes in and the show is an action adventure. You Stories like Earthshock, you get stories like Warriors of the Deep. They're, they're very much an action adventure. You know, the Cyber Massacre sequence... Uh, in uh, in in the Five Doctors is you know very much an Eric Sayward thing, and then you get someone like uh, Andrew Cartmel, and it's again it, the, the show's tonal shift changes completely, and it becomes more. Uh, I mean, he was obviously going for the graphic novel thing in the light of you know the rise of um, comics in in America and Britain in the eighties. So you had you know st- stories, uh, sorry, comics like uh, Grant Morrison's The Killing Joke influenced uh, Andrew Cartmel. You had uh, uh, Frank Miller's uh, The Dark Knight Returns, uh, the graphic novel, which is a seminal uh, comic book in in, in the uh, early to mid-80s. That influenced the show. And John Nathan Turner sort of, you know, he didn't deny it. He, he sort of embraced it um, or allowed his his, uh, his those script editors to, ru- to run with that. And it affected the show. So in terms of the creative aspect, he was certainly lacking. Um, and you could sort of, you know, when Sayward was, had lost, I don't know, lost confidence in him, you could sort of see that the show was drifting and things went I mean I liked the Colin Baker years but things went badly wrong in terms of the, the, the just the rise of violence uh, and stuff like that and that was just turning off a whole lot of people unfortunately and and was used as partially as an excuse anyway uh, to cancel the show in in uh, in uh, 85 I think what JNT's problem was when he was uh, left, let go of the BBC, he kept hanging around Doctor Who. So things like the early videos that came out, he had a hand in writing them, producing them, and things like that. He's sort of hanging on to the cadaver almost, really, just trying to keep going with it. Because when you look at those, have you? Can, do you remember those videos, the Hartnell years and Troughton years and the Sidemen and the Dalek ones? I remember them. I mean, I mean, they're essentially clips shows, aren't they? Very, very shallow productions, um, you know, littered with basic mistakes. I mean, the shard of VHS was the best effort, and the reviews at the time were, were quite favourable to it. I know, because I wrote one, um, um, and I, I mean, I did enjoy it. But I was comparing, it's like, it's like when you saw Phantom Menace three or four times. It, it just was terrible, and all of a sudden you get hit with The Empire Strikes Back. So you had, you know, the Hartnell years and the Troughton years all coming along and just being woeful, and all of a sudden the Sharder comes up, and it's a mile leap from what, what had been done before. But he just kept hanging around and producing work, which I suppose gave his detractors more ammunition to try and get rid of him from Doctor Who scene altogether. 
Well, as much as an actor can be typecast in a role, J&T unfortunately became typecast in his producership. And, you know, by that stage, Doctor Who's uh, cachet within the BBC had collapsed, had just utterly collapsed. And um, he couldn't he couldn't get any work. He constantly tried to put up, you know, pitches for different sorts of shows and he would be constantly knocked back. And, that, you know, some of the pitches were were desperate efforts to get something up that you know didn't really didn't really were never going to go anywhere and some of them were were halfway decent but he was tagged as being the producer of Doctor Who this show that no one at the BBC loves certainly you know Jonathan Powell didn't know what to do with it Michael Grade didn't know what to do with it and one of the one of the things about um the book that comes strongly through is that I mean Michael Grade has long been regarded as the villain of the piece in terms of getting, you know, cancelling the show in '85, but Jonathan Powell, who's quite candid, admittedly, admittedly, twenty-five years too late, but he is quite candid in his regard for the show at that time and what he wished he could have done to get rid of the show at that time if he'd been more upfront instead of just sort of sitting back. I mean, that, that's another excellent aspect of the show of the book that, that shines through that you get these people who are, you know. We've got no, 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 nothing to hide behind anymore. They're quite happy to be open about it, and and, and Powell is is quite open about it. Yeah, as you said, though, twenty five years too late. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I think Nathan Turner was crying out for guidance um, in 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 what they wanted from the show, and they really didn't want anything from the show at all. I think they wanted it to go away, but they, they didn't have the guts to do it themselves. And the, and and the cancellation was a typical example of a half a, a half effort at getting rid of it oh we've cancelled oh no we've not cancelled it you know it's coming back in in 18 months well what are you doing i mean if you're going to cancel it just cancel it for goodness sake and then move on yeah that's right or put it on bbc2 if they hated it that much on bbc1 it's making a truckload of Mm. cash put it on bbc2 it's not on your schedules you can do whatever you want you can do all your highbrow uh productions that power wanted to do later on and interestingly enough RTD in the book because RTD is sort of woven into some of the um, the narrative I suppose trying to give some sort of counterbalance between the old and the new series and from a producership point of view I agree with him when he said that you know Jonathan Powell's main thing is he's not remembered for a lot of the prestigious productions he did he is remembered for the cancellation postponement whatever you want to call it of Doctor Who and his general disdain I mean good on Powell for being honest you know if I was producer of Doctor Who at the time with Powell as my boss I mean you could never please him at all no. and some of the, it's just terrible uh, how can you how can you produce and do your best work when you have a boss that's, is openly critical and just has so much disdain for you as an individual and the show I would be soul destroying and I mean I, yeah. I suppose and that's what exactly happened to Nathan Turner after he left the show I mean he would he would it was fairly clear that he was not going to be taken back. There was there was no, nothing that he could do that would uh, would get him a show on the on the BBC. And I mean, the thing was as well, uh, the BBC was moving towards a more outside production uh, aspect to to what it was doing. I mean, it was it was it was you know contracting out essentially. And John Nathan Turner was was a dinosaur in that field, unfortunately. And unless he got himself attached to another production house. He was never going to be involved in making TV shows, and I mean, and as you said earlier, the, the, his life after the show was quite. And this, I mean, it's 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 overly emotive, I suppose, but it was quite pitiful, really. I mean, he had no he had mm. no real you know uh, professional life really after that. I mean, yes, as you said, he sort of he clung on in in, in, in sort of like a consultancy role with with Doctor Who, but I mean, he was desperate to get away from that not that he hated the show but it, it really it killed his career as a as a as a, as a tv p- person a tv production person and and then when he sort of did get away from it he was, as you said he was he was working on a pantomime for goodness sake which you know i'm sure he enjoyed doing but it would not have been as rewarding as as working in television um and then of course you know his friends dropped away his health fell away uh, and you know eventually he died in rather oh, well you read those pages in the book and you know it's uh it's really sa- it's, very it's very sad, sad. his health completely deteriorated very sad that that, that that last chapter but um in terms of in terms of the show i mean i mean the cancellation is 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 that critical moment i think where it, things could have gone either way i mean the show you know could have faded from into obscurity completely and never come back but Nathan Turner, as depicted in the book, 
he uh, he pulled out all the stops to get the show back. You know, he he used his contacts within within fandom, even those I suppose those uh, even aspects or bits of fandom that sort of you know loathed him. I mean, he was prepared to work with fandom to put the pressure on the BBC to bring it back, and you know, Powell caved into that 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 pressure. Uh, and that's and and that pressure, a lot of that pressure is, uh, as shown in the book, is is down to John Nathan Turner's work to get the show back on TV. But was it the right thing to do? Do you think if being cancelled and hadn't come back at all for say four or five years, do you think it would have been on on the on the air sooner? Oh, I think oh, it's very it's very hard to say, Mark. I mean, I mean, it, we know that it did come back, uh, and shorn of a lot of uh, experience in the show I mean Saywood had, had walked and I mean as you said before there was there was no script editor there were no scripts there was no leading man uh, season season 20 uh, 24 is 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 a disaster basically from go to woe uh, I suppose the show would have come back it could have just completely failed um, my, my opinion is that while season 24 is crap watching time and the Rani and you just you just sit there and you 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 just wonder is this the same show? Is this honestly the same show? You have a bit of a goodwill for it because it's it's a lot of good memories for you when you were a child. But is this the same show? Who is this actor? Who is this short man playing with cutlery? Is he the Doctor? Is this the same show? If it weren't for the fact that Doctor Who is splashed across the most appalling set of titles you will ever see with and logo. And music that, that that doesn't actually soar but merely grumbles. It grumbles along. Time in the Rani is awful. And it's easy to say that, but it is bloody awful. And then I recently watched Delta and the Bannerman. Three episodes that felt like three years. Three episodes of sounded it felt like three years, and you sit there and you go, it's on location, but it's shot on video, so it looks awful. The story is... And if this style of storytelling that Cartmore was wanting to bring along that you know, replicated the graphic novel, you were, you were just getting scenes jumping from one to another with no apparent through line. Things just happen. Things happen coincidentally, but yet are beneficial for the, you know, for the plot somehow. It looks awful. The characters, ah, oh, the the was it Don Henderson? Were you in a completely different show? We, he was in a completely different show. He was acting in a completely different show. It was just, it was a remarkable display of ineptitude on every level by every participant. I'm surprised the final episode got as many people watching it as they did. Were they dead? Were, were they counting dead people? Because it was. Awful, awful. But that aside, I think seasons twenty-five and twenty-six, in a, in a way, and again, you know, Andrew Cartmell comes in, and it's all basically down to him, and 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 Nathan Turner lets him get on with it. But in a way, it presages um, what we're seeing currently in the modern era. Uh, and you know, as I, I said before, that uh, Andrew Cartmell is probably responsible for most of it. But uh, you know, at the end of the day, the buck stops with the man in charge, and the man in charge at that stage was John Nathan Turner. And the sort of more uh, inward-looking developing of the character, developing of the companions, giving them a sort of a, a personal life, a personal history that, that resonates within the story, uh, presages what happened, uh, you know, with the return of the show, where it concentrates more on the emotions and the personalities of the lead characters, sort of at the expense of the story uh, to, to an extent. And, you know, in that sense, they were ahead of their time. So, Jonathan Turner's. Let's just have a talk about his. Uh, I suppose good points, the the great things he did for the show, and the not so great things he did for the show. So, in, for me, he revitalised the show from season seventeen onwards. Uh, season eighteen to me is one of my favourite seasons. Actually, in terms of the look, the the feel of it, the stories are great. I mean, Meg Loss, It's a bit. It's a it's a lightweight effort. That whole season to me works really really well. Um, you know the improved production values, the radiophonic mu- workshop music coming in, just a great series. And Tom's performance has been reined in 
to be dark and somber again and yeah I, I have really uh, strong feelings towards that series um, he cast Peter Davison a complete contrast to what had been before and I suppose now we, we take for granted the, the youthful doctor to play the role where Davison was the first stab at that and in my opinion did a really great job he was great at publicity fantastic at publicity he could get the maximum amount of publicity for any old matter of uh, tatties to put out say for example we're going to get rid of the TARDIS shell I think uh, it was for Attack of the Cybermen he, you mentioned before he was a trailblazer in some ways he was uh, in the book it mentions that he was putting together a, a Hartnell clips tape called The Hartnell Years ironically where he was himself hosting it because again due to the adulation in American conventions, uh, he he perceived himself to be the fan ambassador to the show, which is ironic because Stephen Moffat's doing this. Have you seen the Doctor's Revisited series at all? I have them have them teed up, ready to watch. I think I've looked at a couple of them, uh, but not not all the way through. It's a producer talking about his favourite bits of the show. So twenty five years, thirty years apart, uh, you know, John Nathan Turner was doing that beforehand. He saved the series from cancellation as you mentioned before, getting the press geared up to uh, fight the cancellation and giving Ian Levine code names Snowball to ring up the sun and all those publications to get them all frenzied up to save the, to the, to save the show. I mean, the, the negative thing to come out of that, of course, was uh, the Doctor in Distress single. God, it's vile. It, it it has it has the peculiar attraction of a car crash, where you know you shouldn't look, but as you drive past, you look, and once you look into the mangled wreck and the torn up bodies, you realise what you are seeing is horrifying. And with Doctor in Distress, what you are hearing is equally horrifying. We've just had Band Aid. We've just had We Are the World. Well, it's really it's really a holy trilogy of music, isn't it? I mean, you know, Band Aid, <laughs> We Are the World, and uh, Doctor in Distress. They're all lumped in the same bucket, aren't they, really? Well, surprisingly, Ian Levine doesn't talk very highly of uh, Doctors in, uh, Doctor in Distress either. Well, given uh, Ian Levine's love of all things archival, Doctor Who, his complete run of uh, DC Comics, uh, I'm, in, even in spite of that, I'm fairly certain that he probably burnt his master tape of uh, Doctor in Distress. I suppose anything to get the, sh- get, get the, pub- the show in the public's eye during those fairly tumultuous uh, months. Um, but yeah, it's not. It's a. It's a low point. Low point. Do you think his uh, good points? Well, uh, for me, a lot of uh, T's good points are also his bad points. I mean, as you say, he freshened the show up to a great extent. I mean, uh, the new title sequence, uh, the new, the, the new music, uh, the sort of the the the, the refreshed look to um, Tom Baker's costume um, were, were definite highlights. I mean, as you say, that that, that uh, John Nathan Turner's first produced season is is very very good. Megalos aside. I mean, it's a fairly strong, consistent run of episodes uh, that does, you know, and it does prefigure the sort of the arc um, aspect that now dominates in TV TV shows in America and, and elsewhere. Um, but the flip side of that is too much change and just change for the sake of change. So, you know, we would have constant tinkering with the theme music. We would have constant tinkering with the look of the title, title sequence. We would have situations where he was quite prepared to change one of the most iconic images uh, in the show, the, the, the TARDIS's exterior, uh, just because you know it would garner publicity. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the constant turnover of um, lead actors uh, was—I mean, it suited him in terms of publicising the show. You know, another photo call for a, a new actor, you know, a new direction for the show. But it sort of. It, it didn't give the series this probably the stability that it wanted. I mean, I, I, my, my, one of my theories is that even if Davison, I suppose, had done a fourth year, the show was probably going to be axed anyway. And it was good for Davison and his career that he sort of left when he did. But I, I, I think the, the three years, three years, and I mean, obviously forced on him, for, well, two years actually with Baker. And then obviously McCoy, was, was, uh, his contract wasn't renewed. But it, I think that, that change just for the sake of change because it garnered more publicity was was something that the show didn't really need. I think it needed the sort of stability of a length of tenure like Pertwee had and you know, for, and Tom Baker. I mean, you wouldn't want anyone to do it for seven years like Tom Baker. I mean, that's clear. That's clearly no, to the five. five. Four or five years is probably... Yeah. Uh, three years is too little, 
and four or five years is probably just about right and anything over four or five years is 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 just too long but um i mean yeah as i said before his 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 ability to stretch a budget his his ability i mean and that was seen with taking the show overseas uh, several times i mean why i mean that that's great because it gives the show show a different look at you away from the english home counties and all that sort of thing but i mean if it doesn't have anything to do with the story i mean you could have set the two doctors anywhere really we just go to you know to 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 Spain because we can because we can afford to, and because we can have an enjoyable party while we're making it, um, is is not something that you know you would encourage really, um, but um, and his and I've touched on his his weaknesses uh, his other main weakness which is his lack of story ability story writing skills and the, and that sort of thing, which meant that his his tenure can be divided into not the giant it's not the JNT era essentially it is you know the Bidmead era. It is the Eric Sayward era, and it is the Andrew Cartmel era, with John Nathan Turner in the back background running the account books. Uh, so, to that extent, um, uh, you, you'd want a, a more stronger figure in that regard to put his stamp on it. But that's just the way he was, uh, and that's just the way the show was in its uh, final nine years on uh, in the eighties. What about his not so good points? His um, <laughs> his increasing identification. With himself and the show, the the, the 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 show's success was basically tied to him. Meant mm. that I think he was blind to a, a lot of things that were going wrong with the show. That he would get this. Uh, the worst thing I think he can do is listen to fans. And in 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 the late seventies, a lot of fans were displeased with the direction of the Graham's Graham Williams era. I think a lot of them, like a lot of teenagers and and people in their early twenties, they're overly serious. So anything the, the the show that they've grown up to love be, suddenly becomes lighthearted and comedic in aspects, and they they they, they they're aghast. And so John Nathan bringing turning down the comedy to an extent, I suppose, and you know making the Doctor more somber sort of appealed to their you know their inner their inner uh, inner goth, I suppose, <laughs> to an extent. Locked in their bedrooms, listening to the Cure and Depeche Mode. Yes, all day. Well, exactly. But uh, so the, the, like the last thing, and, and that that sort of listening to fandom fed into the whole. The, the embracing of continuity which was it was that was a mistake i think i mean the show constantly needs to be out look you know looking outwards you can't always go back to the well of previous continuity and you know serve that up fresh as if it was something fresh and wonderful because we we saw with uh, with warriors of the deep that they totally misused Misused the Silurians and the Sea Devils. I mean, it was just it was just badly badly organised. And why would you want to bring back a character like the Celestial Toymaker from a forgotten serial twenty years beforehand, just to please a small percentage of the audience who read Doctor Who magazine and other fans? But, but the thing I think sometimes is that if if John Nathan Turner wasn't getting any feedback from BBC management, and you know, tellingly in the book, it, it, the book would said that you know. Uh, Jonathan Powell would sit in and watch, you know, the episodes before they went out, just to give his tick, you know, tick a few boxes, and he would just sit there and sort of fiddle around with the paperwork on his desk while the twenty-five minutes ran down, and then offer no opinion about it. So if he's not getting any any feedback from uh, BBC management, but he's getting lots of feedback from fans in Britain and America and Australia who are loving these touches of continuity, well, they will just serve. They're giving me something, so I'll give them something back, and I'll just do it more and more and more, and it. It, it 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 just it creatively obsessive slavishness to continuity is a cul-de-sac from which you can't escape and it was it's just it was just that was a mistake that was a clear mistake but you know i think doctor who at that stage was just a, and even in the 70s i mean the, the striking thing in the book was they just you know the manage, management just let the series go you know it come up for you know budget talks here's some money off you go here's some money off you go and the same thing happened in the 80s and uh, until the television environment in the UK began to change. And, um, and you know, Michael Grade and Jonathan Powell came in and, I mean, to their credit, they had a remit to freshen up the BBC's output. And a lot of TV from that, uh, from that particular era is, is great TV. I mean, I've, I've watched and con- watched again and continue to love Edge of Darkness, for instance. And that, you know, yeah, it's fantastic. Friends of, friends of ours have, you know, have, have talked, you know, glowingly about Brideshead Revisited and, and, and TV like that. And so, mm. I mean, you know, Doctor Who is just a TV show. We should always remember it is just a TV show. And if, it, if as a TV show it wasn't working and its budget could be better allocated somewhere else, 
and the time, the TV, you know, minutes could be allocated to something that was worthier or better or a more wide appealing. Well, then, you know, I could understand why it was taken away. But I mean, they had they should have done it in the right way, and they they clearly did not. No, exactly. I completely underestimated the uh, the response they got initially when they cancelled it. So that's why they did it stealth like. Well, at the end, they just let it die. Contract's not renewed. Contract's not. No, that's it. And kept saying we'll keep the door open. But I mean, in, in Nathan Turner's defence, I mean, season twenty four was rubbish. But the the following two seasons did lay. Not that John Nathan Turner, you know, actively or consciously knew this, but it did lay the seeds for what happened in the nineteen nineties, where you you had a greater concentration on the Doctor's character and past, and Ace's character and past, and you had a whole slew of up and coming writers, your Paul Cornells, your uh, Mark Gattises, you know, even your Russell T Davies, who contributed to the the new adventures and even the the, the, the missing adventures. And they, they, they took they used those last two years as a springboard. And mm-hmm. and all through the nineties you read books, you know, Kate uh, Kate Orman, John Bloom, they use that template to create you, you I mean if you if you just use Doctor Who's template as an action adventure science fiction fantasy, you'd end up with books that are the same length as Terence Dick's efforts of novelizing the stories. But if you take the take the attitude of the last couple of years of the McCoy era where there's you know increased characterization, then you 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 effectively have the, the 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 working the tools to write a 300 page book, which is full mm-hmm. of action adventure science fiction and fantasy, but it hangs off the framework of you know great characters who have real depth and 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 leap off the page as as much as they can of three dimension three dimensional characters. So I mean that that the 1990s is in part John Nathan Turner's legacy, and of course, you know you had Russell T Davies who was devouring that sort of thing and when he comes back in 2004 5 and brings the show back it's not just an action adventure show it is the ninth doctor scarred wounded guilty conscience about the actions of the time war and that's the, that's his character his character arc through that first season you've got rose tyler who might as well be ace who might as well be ace because she is you know Lower, lower middle class, you know, working class, you know, is her life is boring up until she meets the doctor, and then she finds fulfilment with him, and 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 a new life, and that, I mean, and you could rightly argue that the chain is a bit tenuous, the links are a bit tenuous, or the thread is thin, but those final two years in in eighty eight and eighty nine run all the way through to 2005, in my opinion. And you can lay that, lay that at J&T's feet to an extent. I'd lay it more at Andrew Cartmel's feet than J&T's. True. I mean, and, and as I said before, I mean, it, it is it is Cartmel, it, Cartmel's vision that you see through the McCoy era, the later McCoy era. But I've always thought that the buck stops with the bloke in charge and J&T was in charge. And he did not, he actively, he did not actively work to undermine Cartmel. He let him go... He supported him. I think he was. I think Nathan Turner was quite prepared to let people do the job that they had if they were committed to the show and they were committed to him and they were willing to work with him. I mean, he was very loyal. I mean, hack directors who I won't name just in case they are still alive. Ron Jones. Uh, yeah. Were, <laughs> were allowed to come back again and again because A, they get the show done on budget and on time and that's fair enough. But they also worked well with John Nathan Turner. Um, the TV show, the TV production wasn't a movie. It had, it had you know, a limited budget. It had limited time and it had union rules about you couldn't work past 10pm otherwise we turn the lights off and you're all standing around in darkness or we go down to the pub. Probably too loyal in some instances. I think a lot of the 80s who especially the Davison and Colin Baker years, the direction is flat. It really needed more Harpers and Grimwades in there, um, really sort of beefing things up. I don't know what Peter Grimwade could do with, uh, say, Terminus, or Graham Harper could have done with Time Flight. It could have obviously done something better than what ended up on well, screen. Knowing Harper's predilection for people with guns, I'm sure someone would have stepped out of a side corridor and gunned every other supporting character down in five minutes in. Because that's basically what they deserved. Yeah, you've escaped from Zerifast. No, you haven't. Bang, bang. Bang, bang, you're dead. (laughs) 
So, in the light of reading the book, Mark, I mean, what was your what was your takeaway having read the book? Was I mean, was it was it a worthwhile effort by Marzen? Yes, it was. I thoroughly enjoyed it. As I said in the introduction, it was great to get a different perspective of the man and his life. Uh, it was an easy read, enlightening, frightening in <laughs> some sections, um, but definitely if you can track a copy down, I know. They had some, uh, you mentioned before, about issues with distribution and things like that. Some copies are going on eBay for vastly increased prices. I think you had to pay quite a lot of money and a couple of kidneys to get a copy. Um, but if you can track down a copy of it, definitely well worth picking up and having a read, even if you're not a big fan of the classic series. It's just an interesting, uh, I suppose, side note into terms of uh, how the show was produced and how and what happened during the uh, tumultuous 80s, really. How about yourself? I agree. I mean, as you said, it's an easy read, Marzen has an easy style, uh, probably occasionally too a little too colloquial um, in, in what he's written. But if you've ever listened to Marzen talk, um, as I have in some interviews uh, that he did to promote the book, I think he's a natural raconteur. And uh, that, that shines through in the book. It's, as you said, it's a very easy read, uh, three or four days to get through almost 300 pages. Um, I, I came away... Uh, with a, a heightened appreciation of of J and T and his efforts, um, as you said, some of it is, some of it is, uh, it, some of it is deeply upsetting, uh, particularly the end of his life. Some of it is you f- you feel really sorry for him that his career sort of hit a wall and never really recovered. Uh, your your appreciation of him of him is deepened. Your frustration at him is deepened. Uh, but I think what I took away, uh, apart from you know more in a understanding of the inner workings of the BBC was a greater appreciation of his love for the show. You wouldn't, I suppose, hang around that long um, if you hated it. I mean, if you genuinely hated it and thought that it had killed your TV career, he would have walked away earlier. But he stuck with it and stuck with it and stuck with it through thick and thin, even in the teeth of you know, the disdain of the BBC, even in the teeth of you know, repeated personal attacks on him uh, from fandom and, and key figures in fandom. Um, and, and in some instances, what he would have probably regarded as the betrayal of the loyalty that he'd showed in a, in a number of key key individuals. Um, but you now, at the end of the day, John Nathan Turner, like all of us, was just a person doing the very best he could with what he had in front of him. And like everyone else, uh, life is full of ups and downs, failures and successes. Uh, and whether you like what he did or whether you didn't like what he did, uh, his nine years in the producership of Doctor Who... Um, were is part of the fabric of the show whether you like it or not and uh and it's it's just there it's just there for everyone to just to watch and view and make up their own minds and as you said i mean anyone listening to this who hasn't read the book go out and 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 definitely get your hands on it i mean it's probably one of the better one of the best books i've read about the behind the scenes aspects of the show and um it probably set a benchmark for for future biographies of you know, key figures in the show. And I'm really looking forward, uh, on the back of, of, of this, the quality of this book, um, uh, the biography by Richard Molesworth of, uh, of Robert Holmes. So, I mean, if this is the sort of standard we can expect of biographies and, you know, in-depth looks at the background of the show, you know, more power to all those writers out there who are putting them together. So definitely two thumbs up from me. And a leg. Maybe two legs. So apart from the J&T book, Rob, have you watching any more or listening to any Doctor Who recently? Um, well, two things that have uh, that have uh, I've been following uh, the last a couple of weeks. I've uh, pulled out my copy of uh, Destiny of the the Daleks, which I haven't seen. You laugh, but uh, <laughs> I, like, I, I like honestly it. have. It's great. I haven't I haven't seen it in oh, since the early eighties. I'm reasonably sure. I'm reasonably sure. And does the memory uh, cheat, Rob? Well, given that um, a lot of the Williams era is criticised for being too light-hearted, the first two episodes of Destiny that I've, I've watched in, over the last week are surprisingly played very straight, with one or two exceptions. Some of the so-called undergraduate humour that uh, Tom Baker is apparently meant to exhibit, or meant to have exhibited, there's none of that really there to be seen, other than lying under that pillar reading a uh, reading a book mentioned in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. It's it's played pretty straight. I mean, it's a Nathan a, a Terry Nation script and it's 
fairly, you know, paint by numbers. You know, where they there's a chase, we're captured, we escape. There's a chase, we're captured, we escape. Uh, production wise, I suppose it's standard for its time. It's just it's a real eye opener actually because I mean Tom Baker plays it pretty straight. Uh, Lola Ward is always fun to watch. Um, uh, in, in that, and she, she exhibits occasionally some some genuine acting. You know, when the Daleks emerge through the uh, through the wall and uh, and uh, and sort of corner her. But um, I'm two episodes in. Uh, every time the Mavellans come on, I feel like I need to dance under a glitter ball. Um, <laughs> disco Inferno. Disco Disco Inferno. Destiny of the Disco Inferno. But uh, I'm, I'm having I'm having a lot of fun with that, and it's it's nice to nice to catch up with that. And the other thing uh, I've been looking at is is a book. I picked up a very 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 cheap copy of. Uh, a book from the 90s called License Denied, which was edited by uh, Paul Cornell, uh, which was uh, a collection of... Uh, of Articles. Piece, right? Articles written in uh, UK and uh, American and in probably in some instances Australian fanzines. And uh, as a... If you could just listen to this. As a, uh, a catalogue or a history of, uh, the, I suppose, the best or most entertaining or the most interesting of... Uh, fanzine writing from from that time um it's it's a really good uh time capsule uh so um i picked up my copy for a buck uh i'm gonna sling this one on ebay and hopefully get a few dollars out of some fans but in the interim i'm gonna uh, i think i'm gonna go through and uh and just uh remind myself of uh, all those fanzines i purchased in 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 the 90s before purging them there's some good articles in there actually there are, and I mean, there's yeah. some great fan writers here. I mean, there's Jack Rayner, who uh, I think uh, is still involved in writing. Um, who else is there? Andy Lane, of course, who wrote for The New Adventures. Uh, Lee Binding, who I believe uh, does the covers or some of the covers for the DVDs. So, I mean, there's a lot of people here who've um, you know who've who've gone on uh, from fanzines and uh, and and other sort of fan uh, produced things to, uh, to to bigger and and better and and uh, more entertaining things. And there'll be a link to the auction on eBay in the on the blog. Yes, bid. Anyone who, if you want a shill bid as well, uh, you know, put in fake bids. Just do it. Just do it for me. I need. I need to eat lunch at work. <laughs> what about yourself, Mark? What have you been watching? Well, I watched the Ice Warriors. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. I watched the Ice Warriors. Got um, I got a, a copy of that, and uh, yeah, it was it was good. I mean, it's certainly a vast improvement on the old copies we used to have on VHS, and it was great to see. I mean, the animation of episodes two and three is getting a bit of a stick, uh, especially when you compare it to uh, the Tenth Planet Four animation. Did you see that? The animation of Tenth Planet Four was was really really good. I mean, it was yeah. Compared to the Reign of Terror one, uh, it was a vast improvement. And this has almost gone back to a invasion style, simplistic style. And some of the some of the movements did remind me of uh, some South Park animation. But look. End of the day, it's great it's out there. You can watch the whole thing in context of six episodes. It is a little bit slow. I did enjoy watching it again the first time in about 15, 20 years. So hats off to BBC for, for doing that. And I also just finished watching this, the uh, DVD of Scream of the Shulker. So what was it like watching Shulker on DVD as opposed to a 56k uh, internet connection? On a Pentium 2 350. Well, there was no stuttering or juttering apart from me... Uh, spilling my tea on myself um i enjoyed it so i really came into it not knowing and remembering anything much about it apart from you know trying to watch it in a 56k modem 15 minute episodes uh six of six of them yeah it was good i enjoyed it the animation obviously is dated you know compared to things like dreamland and the infinite quest and those ones Storyline on Shulk was better, better than those animation DVDs. But yeah, in terms of the overall package, you know, it's okay. But uh, would I pay full price for it? Probably wouldn't. I'd probably wait till it drops down like 10 bucks and yes. pick it up. Coming to a bargain bin uh, near you soon. I might, might actually, just not that we're a review thing, but my main uh, two memories uh, of uh, Scream of the Shulker were watching it uh, through a, a haze of uh, suffering from gastroenteritis. Uh, which which uh, which may have improved it or may not have improved it. I'm not entirely sure because I can't quite remember. Uh, and also um, the interview with Richard E. Grant in DWM, which was oh yes, uh, very disdainful, I think, or very dismissive. Uh, that was my memory of it. So uh, yeah. I, I, as you as you, I'm I'm, I'm keen. Well, not keen. I mean, I've got better. I've got other things that are more interesting at the moment. But one day I'll, I'll pick up a cheap copy. 
on DVD and uh, and and sit back and marvel at uh, where the BBC thought Doctor Who was. Uh, well, that's right. And the behind there is a behind the scenes feature added in terms of the story of how the production happened, which was quite good. Uh, and again, it's one of those tormented trails of uh, getting something on the screen. Mm. Well, it sort of happens every time the show comes back. It's always a journey and a and a, and a trial to get things uh, rolling along. But yeah, it was okay. I passed the time. The great journey of life. So that's our week in Doctor Who. So thanks for joining us this week uh, as we've rambled on about John Nathan Turner's uh, Life and Times. Um, you can contact us at our Gmail account, 42todoomsday at gmail.com. That's 42TO Doomsday. Uh, you can uh, spam us on Twitter at, uh, at 42todoomsday. Uh, we welcome any and all feedback. Uh, the, 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 uh, the podcast is only improved by the feedback from our listeners. So uh, please... Send us, uh, send us in your thoughts, uh, topics of discussion. Uh, always keen to hear what fans uh, like to, uh, like to like us to talk about. So until next time, I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from him. Mm-hmm.